Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny famously returned to Moscow in January 2021, where he was promptly arrested at the airport for supposed parole violations. A month later, his suspended sentence was replaced with a two-and-a-half-year prison sentence. And then about a year after that, in March 2022, a judge added another nine years to his prison term, convicting him in a kangaroo court of embezzlement and contempt of court. So Navalny has at least another decade of imprisonment ahead of him, but likely it will be far more. In a new trial, with a verdict expected on Friday, August 4th, public prosecutors have asked a judge to sentence Navalny to an additional 20 years in prison on charges of creating an extremist organization, inciting extremism, and creating a nonprofit organization that infringed on Russian citizens' rights, financed extremism, and involved minors in dangerous activities. Oh, and they say he rehabilitated Nazism, too. In late April, the prosecution dumped a 196-volume case file on Navalny, and the court gave him a week to review the materials. Before this, Navalny had said that he expects to be charged in a separate case in a military court, actually, for crimes related to terrorism. And if that comes to be, he'll probably face life imprisonment. Navalny's current trial has been closed to the public, but his supporters published the text of his closing statement. Actually, they released a video where various celebrities and scholars read the text. In the speech, Navalny talks about listening to his conscience and his intellect. I love Russia, he told the court. My intellect tells me that living in a free and prosperous country is better than living in a corrupt and destitute one. As I stand here looking at this court, my conscience tells me that there will be no justice in such a court for me or anyone else. So ahead of the verdict in this latest case against Russia's best-known anti-Kremlin opposition leader, let's talk about Alexei Navalny, about his movement, and about how he's changed Russian politics, even as he languishes behind bars. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On today's show, you'll hear from two guests about the state of the Navalny movement and its place in Russian politics and society. Though Navalny has been in prison for more than two years now, more than 900 days, he still regularly makes news headlines in Russia's exiled independent press. In addition to the extremism case that's supposed to wrap up this week, Navalny recently called Igor Strelkov a political prisoner. Igor Strelkov, real name Igor Gyrkin, the former FSB officer, convicted in absentia by a Dutch court of murdering 298 people on board flight MH17 by participating in shooting it down as the defense minister of the Donetsk People's Republic Russian puppet state. That was last November. Ever since, Strelkov has been living peacefully in Russia, blogging his black heart out as one of Telegram's leading Z voices. But on July 21st, the Russian authorities arrested him for inciting extremist activity on the internet. In comments shared by his team, Navalny argued that Strelkov's arrest is illegal, politically motivated retribution for his criticism of the authorities. Now, this wasn't the first time Navalny spoke out in a way that angered or annoyed others in the opposition. Some still criticize him for returning to Russia in the first place. And in the context of the invasion of Ukraine, many have little sympathy for his situation, given some of his past statements about Ukraine, which critics say are imperialist or somehow dismissive. Navalny's movement is banned now in Russia. What remains is either in prison or underground. His core team is still active from Europe with an office in Vilnius, and they run several popular YouTube channels. They lobby Western politicians for new sanctions against various Russian officials and figures, and they coordinate limited protest campaigns like demonstrations on August 20th, the third anniversary of Navalny's poisoning by the FSB, 
And they're organizing a new information campaign against the war in Ukraine that will use offshore call centers and online social networks to cold call Russians and deliver anti-war messaging. To learn more about the Navalny movement and the state of Team Navalny's operations, I spoke to political scientist Mikhail Turchenka, who's now a visiting scholar at Indiana University. We talked about where they've come from and where they're headed, about the infighting that plagues Russia's anti-Kremlin opposition, and about the nature of doing anti-corruption activism during a war. What remains of the Navalny movement today that is still inside Russia? Well, it's a good question, actually, because as you know, the, all Navalny structures have been banned in Russia in summer 2021. The prosecutor or prosecution office banned them as extremist organizations. And after that, the Moscow court approved this decision. So since that time, it's just illegal to be a Navalny supporter back in Russia. And this is why we cannot, at least I cannot evaluate properly the number of people who are still working for Navalny team back in Russia. But we know that the Navalny team has been doing a job in order to restore the whole network of supporters and volunteers back in Russia. For instance, by launching the new Navalny headquarters initiative and recently by announcing the new program, which is called Anti-War Information Campaign. Mm -hmm. And so with the anti-war campaign, what is the potential of something like this? It is aimed at audiences still inside Russia. So they're sort of, they're, they're playing with fire, I guess, because their movement is banned, right? And any interaction with it, even like, you know, reposting something online is a potential criminal offense. What are they capable of doing here? The main idea behind this campaign is to reach out ordinary Russians and urge them to stop supporting the Putin's regime and his aggressive war by providing Russians with some information about uh, Putin's atrocities and Putin's crimes. So since it has not yet started, it's too early to evaluate it somehow. But at the same time, this campaign, in my opinion, may produce some outcomes. We know from the recent political science literature that providing war supporters with the opinion that the war is not supported by everyone leads to a drop in, in their confidence about the war's popularity. And moreover, we also know that when people are confronted with the information that Putin is not as popular as they initially thought, their support for him can decline. So speaking from the political science literature perspective, this campaign may have some consequences. But as I have already said, it's too early somehow to evaluate this campaign and predict this campaign's outcome right. because it has not yet started. But to achieve the kind of results that you're talking about, or just to approach that kind of influence, Navalny's group would have to be able to reach people that are outside of its existing audience, right? Because presumably anybody that's watching it on YouTube in secret or whatever, already agrees and is already aware of the anti-war perspective. But to change sort of public thinking or to just grow the anti-war movement, they would have to reach people that are not already watching their channel. So they have to like figure out how to get those messages into their inbox or under their door or something, right? Absolutely. And this is the main strength of this campaign, in my opinion, because now Navalny's team has a lot of YouTube channels like uh, Navalny, the most popular YouTube channel that has more than 6 million of subscribers. Navalny Live that has more than 3 million of subscribers. 
But I do suppose that all those subscribers are the Navalny supporters. They are in their own bubbles. But in order to make a difference, in order to somehow influence or what's going on inside the country, of course, you have to reach out those people who are outside your media empire and media environment. And the campaign that Navalny's team have recently launched, I mean, this anti-war information campaign, is aimed exactly on those people who are either pro-war guys or those people who could be skeptical toward the war, but at the same time, they could be not related to the Navalny's empire. How does it propose to do that? Well, just by providing those people with information which they do not consume on a daily basis, for instance. But how does it reach them? Uh, so the main idea of how the Navalny team can reach them, as Volkov explained this week, to the best of my knowledge, is just to use Telegram calls by using some you know, database of phone numbers of ordinary Russians in order to reach them personally, face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Not robocalls, but actually like people calling? Like yes, call centers? yes, I guess so. Yeah, okay. All right. How important do you think Navalny's public image is for his team, or has it kind of moved beyond him as a figure? Definitely, it's uh, the main brand for the Navalny team. It's called Navalny team. Navalny is definitely a leader of Russian non-sustaining opposition, but at the same time, I do suppose that uh, now Navalny team is suffering from the problem that they do not have any other leader except Navalny. But Navalny currently is in the Russian jail, and his ability to somehow influence on what Navalny's team is doing is limited because of the fact. What position does the Navalny team occupy in the Russian opposition more largely? The Navalny team used to be the main Russian non-systemic opposition before the war. And before the summer 2021, when this opposition group has been banned in Russia. In 2017, to the best of my knowledge, Navalny announced the creation of the Navalny headquarters, the network of organizations throughout the whole Russian big cities. And before his presidential campaign, he was going to run for presidency. Despite the fact that he has been banned from ruining presidency, this huge network has maintained back in Russia, and it made a big difference in mobilizing ordinary Russians for anti-vision behavior, for instance. It launched a very successful smart voting campaign. It was in charge of organizing the mass protest actions based in Russia and like that. So currently, the Navalny team is still probably the main group of Russian opposition, but this group now is in exile. And it significantly limits its ability to reach out fellow citizens and somehow to influence the Russian politics from abroad. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's not a problem of Russian team. It's a problem of any opposition groups from any countries which are exiled. Mm -hmm. What are the like primary functions these days of Team Navalny? Well, any opposition, any political opposition, which is exiled, have four main tasks to perform. The first Mm -hmm. task is just to maintain the old network of supporters, mostly in a home country. The second task is to work actively on politicizing their fellow citizens in order to somehow spark protests or any other dissenting actions against the regime 
The third main task is to establish any networks with new migrants who also could be willing to work with this opposition in order to have a voice on what's going on inside the country. And the fourth task is to work with international organizations, political elites of foreign countries in order to lobby some sanctions or any other things. Speaking about those four uh, dimensions, I would suppose that Navalny team has been doing pretty good. It has been establishing some networks inside the country. He is trying to inform its supporters. But at the same time, in my opinion, uh, Navalny's team has some problems with its work. So first of all, in my opinion, they underestimate the potential of Russian migrants. I have not seen any active attempts of working with a new Russian diaspora and trying somehow to involve it into the current protest activity. My second point is that the Navalny team, at least on their main YouTube channel with uh, 6 million of uh, subscribers, they are still paying much more attention on any corruption issues rather than on issues relating with uh, anti-war resistance back in Russia or abroad or any, you know, highlighting war crimes. Of course, they do consider those topics, but on less important YouTube channels. And the third thing, which, in my opinion, Navalny team is doing not good, it's still fighting with groups of any Russian opposition forces. It's a quite bad thing because fighting with any Russian opposition forces can backfire. It can lead to decline of popularity. It can lead to some divisions. And most importantly, it can lead to effective polarization. And effective polarization could be a pretty big obstacle on creates new political institutions would be possible in Russia. Yeah. Are those significant, though? Because I imagine that from the Team Navalny perspective, I mean, this is sort of self-justifying, I'm sure, but the notion would be, well, if you're fighting with us, you're like vindictive. You're not really opposition. You're a collaborator. Even if you're Maxim Katz, it's like you're just a card shark. It's more like, well, you don't matter. You know, you don't really mobilize people. You're just an intellectual or something. And so... From their perspective, they're kind of maintaining ideological purity and dealing with like serious opposition work and the people that disagree with them or something else. You're saying that that's misguided? Yeah, I totally understand this and I totally understand the Navalny team when it's trying somehow to defend its identity. But at the same time, my comment related not only to Navalny team, but to any other groups of Russian opposition. Mm -hmm. Now, Russia is in a very desperate position. Now it's involved in aggressive war with Ukraine. And in my perspective, the all groups of Russian opposition should be focused on fighting with Putin, first of all, mm -hmm. and trying to urge ordinary Russians against this war instead of fighting with each other. This is the, my only point. Right. Of course, in the future, they could fight with each other as many times as they wish. But currently, it's crucially important to be focused. What if the anti-war message doesn't resonate well enough with the Russian masses and they feel like they can still, you know, connect with more people with like anti-corruption stuff? Is there an argument to be made there? Yeah, you are totally right that any corruption issues could be resonate with Russian audience better than any war crimes issues. But it seems that you have to 
be balanced on covering any issues. You should not say only about the corruption. Of course, Navalny teams say not only about corruption, for instance, even on their main YouTube channel, they are currently speaking about the corruption in the military. And mm-hmm. on their Navalny Live channel, they are on daily basis covering topics related to war in Ukraine. But yeah. my idea is that probably they should somehow put more attention on war things and stuff like that on their main YouTube channel. But uh, I do not possess any internal data of Navalny team. I, yeah. <laughs> my impression. Some people complain that the anti-corruption work itself is actually aiding the Russian war effort, right? That That by pointing out that essentially it makes the Russian military industrial complex more efficient. If you call out where money's being misspent or somebody is doing the wrong thing and they actually take care of that, then the Russian fighting machine will be better. I've seen this argument made, obviously. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I saw it as well. It's kind of a funny <laughs> argument. I do not suppose that after those videos, Russian military complex will be less corrupt. It's kind of funny for me. You don't think the FSB is taking notes on the latest Navalny Live video in order to go after those people? No? I don't think so. Okay. So then what is the efficacy then of even doing those videos? It, it, I suppose it just reminds Russians that the government is not working in their interests, and that would presumably cultivate opposition mentality, I guess. So a short answer, yes. It might seem like a strange idea, given that Navalny is in prison and Putin is still in power after more than two decades. But Alexei Navalny has actually had a significant impact on the nature of Russian politics. Maxim Trulyubov, Medusa's ideas editor and a senior advisor at the Kennan Institute's Wilson Center, told me what sets Navalny apart from his peers and how he evolved into a major threat to the Putin regime, even inspiring aspects of Yevgeny Prigozhin's public behavior and messaging. How has Navalny influenced and changed Russian politics? Like, what's his impact over the last 20 years, basically? He's been active, really, for about 20 years now, I guess. From my point of view, I think he introduced a different kind of politics, which was not common in Russia before Navalny. I wouldn't think of a single politician or even an activist who would act in a similar way or would be taking political campaigning that seriously. He actually designed campaigns with the help of uh, some of his team members. They designed campaigns to be real public campaigns with actually this kind of door-to-door politics with going out there, shaking hands, creating branches all over the place and spreading the message. So in a way, I think we could say that it's an American type of doing politics in terms of public campaigning, in that sense, being not afraid of actually walking the walk and getting to the actual people. He had very little time and the window opportunity, let's say, has always been very narrow for him. But the major achievement was the um, 2013 campaign for the post of the Moscow mayor. They had about three months to start and run a political campaign, and they designed it, they started it, launched it, created entirely new ways of carrying the message across. They invented the kinds of political marketing devices that has been used ever since, by the way, including by the 
pro-government political forces. So uh, it was incredibly innovative for Russia by the Russian standards at the time. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that you know, he's campaigning in an American style and um, doing kind of like more American or modern marketing, I guess. What are some of the things that you see the regime having borrowed and adapted for itself? Well, again, he had this very shrewd campaigning style, which, yes, they borrowed a lot from that, too. And they continue to do that, by the way. Something they call the smart voting, which is an equivalent of strategic or tactical voting that is used in, in many democracies when you essentially agree to vote against some candidate, vote for someone you don't really want, but to make sure that this person who is like a really like a no-go person gets, you know, voted out. So, yeah, he used that multiple times and achieved some success with that. So that's one of the things. But um, also the important thing and the one that has been borrowed and watched carefully and borrowed again is his media style. So he's been using a lot of campaigning when he could, but most of the time, because of the restrictions and the repression, he mostly had to stick to media. And he used investigations mostly. So they would uncover this or that corrupt practice and publish high-end uh, YouTube version of it. Some of those videos, as you obviously know, had uh, millions of views and uh, one particular has exceeded 100 million views, the one about Putin's palace. They obviously are very jealous for his media style. And uh, what we have seen recently, particularly with the Wagner mutiny and Prigozhin activity, Prigozhin is the guy who's running this uh, mercenary group called Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Russian businessman, the Kremlin-connected businessman who had state contracts with various state organizations, worth billions of dollars, not rubles, but dollars. Right. So basically, Prigozhin borrowed a lot from Navalny, actually, because apparently he realized that uh, Prigozhin is a very different politician. He's, uh, he's on the other side of the spectrum. He is probably could be described as an ultra-right politician, and he is a nationalist, pro-war, sort of almost jingoist nationalist. And his whole point is to criticize the way Russian government, let's say the Russian political military leadership has been prosecuting the war. So from his point, the leadership has failed in the way they prosecuted the war. They did it wrong. They didn't do it proper. And they did it wrong because they are bad. They are the elites who are criminal, who live in luxury, who have all those pensions and palaces right. and send their children to study in Europe, mostly, but in the States as well. This is Navalny's territory, basically. Yeah. So he clearly used uh, that way of inciting hatred towards uh, the elite that Navalny used in more standard political way, yeah. like essentially talking about corruption. So he is, for more than 10 years, I think Navalny stayed as a kind of one message, one issue politician, mostly. 
but Prigozhin used it as a device in a political campaign that could be described as populist, mm-hmm. uh, but it's right-wing populist, which would, if people would actually listen to his messages, they would easily recognize the overtones of the kinds of political campaigns we have in Europe. Uh, alternative for Germany, in Germany, which is a right-wing, ultra-right party, they do a very similar messaging, but on a different platform. Yeah. So in this sense, I think this is what they borrow from Navalny. They, they borrow the techniques, pure techniques, political techniques. They borrow media approaches. Mm-hmm. And this part of anti-elite messaging, just taking it out of Navalny's platform and placing it on their own platform, which is right-wing, conservative. They call themselves conservative. The Kremlin and pro-Kremlin politicians love to call themselves conservative, whatever they mean by that. But essentially, they borrow these things to try and build some kind of message that they basically don't really need because they are in power anyway, but they apparently have to feel this void. If we look back at Navalny's own investigation of his attempted murder, I think they've started following him since 2017. So, uh, I mean, 2013 was the time when Navalny was allowed to take part in an officially approved political campaign in Moscow. So at that time, they clearly didn't see him as a threat. Right. They wanted to humiliate him and show that he could get more than 1% or 2% of the vote. He got uh, 27% of the vote. They clearly were scared. Since then, he ran many other campaigns in the following years, mostly based on the idea of tactical voting, because there were no real candidates that he could advertise. He couldn't run himself. His allies couldn't run themselves most of the time. So they switched to this tactical vote. And this apparently irritated the Kremlin very much. Mm -hmm. Assuming that he's given another 20 years in prison with these latest, this latest case, these, uh, all these new extremism charges, what do you think that says about the stage of repressions in Russia right now? For the past 30 years, let's say post-Soviet Russia, this is the highest level of repression I can think of. Well, you see, the numbers are still not huge. They're not like, say, Turkey's town. Let's say if we look at Turkey's, Erdogan's uh, repression, which at some point after the attempted coup in 2016 and uh, in the years after that, they had lots of people arrested, more than 100 journalists, I think, are still in jail in Turkey. So in terms of numbers, this repression is still sort of not the level of Turkey, not the level of Iran. But by the Russian standards of the past 30 years, it's enormous. And it works mostly by eliminating the top leaders in every field that the Kremlin is scared of, mostly politics, but also media and uh, any form of activism that you can think of. So basically, by now, all of the independent activity you can think of is eliminated. And most of those leaders 
and the people who worked with them, you know, either stayed and went silent or left the country. And what they're doing now, they are conducting a purge, a similar purge on the right wing side. I mean, you cannot really compare the left wing and right wing American way to the Russian political environment. But basically, now they're purging the pro-war people because uh, basically my understanding is that Putin realized that he's not winning the war anytime soon anyway. So he does not really need all those troublemakers who, as is often the case, tend to be the best generals. Let's say the best generals who do the war well, they're also the people who tend to express their attitudes. So he has those generals who express their attitudes. That became clear during the Prigozhin mutiny uh, in June. So basically, since then, he's been conducting a purge within the army ranks, within the top brass and middle brass of the army. Some of the cases are unreported and unknown, but we know about a few cases. So basically what is happening now is a very similar you know, campaign of repression to the liberal side. So this is now on the conservative side. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.